one thing you learn is you just look at your feet, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Like you, if you look out and see the top of the mountain, you're going to psych yourself out because it's so far away. But if you're just looking at your feet and just focusing on one minute at a time, one second at a time, eventually after a couple hours or if you're going after a, a large goal, a couple of years, you'll get there. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And today, we get to have a conversation with Hazard Lee. Hazard uh, started his career as an F-16 fighter pilot for the United States Air Force. From there, he was hand-selected and hand-picked to be the pilot of the coveted F-35 fighter jet. And it was beyond that, that he actually became the chief of training systems for one of the largest bases in the world. This is going to be such a powerful conversation. We're going to dive into the topic of indecision, decision making as a skill, how decision can be trained to others, and then all the parallels, obviously, to the marketplace. Hazard, man, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is great. I'd love to start with a story that really kind of illustrates why the role of fighter pilot encompasses so many of the things that we're going to talk about as it relates to decision-making today. Why the topic of decision-making in the context of being a fighter pilot? Yeah, so I think as a fighter pilot, if you boil my job down, it's to make decisions, thousands of decisions, each flight, often with incomplete information and lives on the line. So we are surrounded by this suit of technology that amplifies everything we're doing. I can fly 100 times faster than I can by foot, I can carry far more. I'm, you know, thousands of times more capable on the battlefield than I could be on my own. So we've really been focused on decision making since John Boyd developed the OODA loop based on his experiences dogfighting during the Korean War. And so, uh, you know, it's something we focus on. It's amazing that the Air Force is able to take somebody off the street and within two years or so, they're flying combat missions on the other side of the world. So decision making is something we we really focus on at every aspect. So we really break decisions down into three phases. I'm sure we'll get the, into this in more detail later, but being able to assess the problem in front of us, being able to choose the correct course of action and being able to execute. And that's what I, I do in training. So I'm in a fighter pilot instructor now, but I've done it in combat. So I talk in the book about coming back from a sortie in Afghanistan. And, you know, the sorties were long. It was about six hours long. So you know, we were having to refuel. We'd have airborne tanker following us along. And so we were doing some overwatch in the Helmand province of Afghanistan. And coming back, I remember we were coming in for landing and I thought sweat had gotten into my eyes because I saw these orange, like glowing ropes going over the base. And so I thought maybe it was just sweat in my eye or uh, something. But I realized that it was actually the base's anti-mortar system going off. So we were getting mortared pretty much daily. And so they have these Gatling cannons that are you know, designed to shoot these mortars down. And so we were coming into land in this, uh, in this area. So hit max afterburner. I had my wingman in about a mile trail of me. We went over the base. And due to some unique circumstances, we didn't have an alternate base. And so that's something that we don't usually do. But this was a, uh, you know, a high-profile overwatch. So the decision had been made that we would fly without an alternate base and uh, so we were really low on fuel. We had to make a bunch of tough decisions. And uh, fortunately, we were able to tank with a, a nearby airborne tanker and only had a couple minutes of fuel left. So that was pretty, uh, 
you know, kind of gut wrenching uh, time when uh, I had to go through this decision making process. But fortunately, everything worked out. Yeah. And what I love about the book is you really walk through many of the techniques and and models that you leverage in a situation like that. And and I think what I found so fascinating about the book is you walk through it pretty methodically, but then like on the back end of each chapter, you explain like this all happens in under two minutes. It's like, it's all happening really quick. And so, yeah, I think that that kind of lays the foundation for why your perspective is so valuable on this topic. I thought a cool place to start would be something that you wrote. It was actually in the afterword. I finished the book yesterday. I've been going through it for about the past two weeks and just enjoyed it so much. But something you said in the afterward, I thought, I thought was really incisive. It said, whereas the 19th and 20th centuries were primarily focused on the effects of the industrial revolution and how to manage large groups of people, this century's leaders will be defined by how clearly they think and make decisions. That's a pretty bold subject for a couple reasons or a pretty bold claim for a couple reasons. I'd love for you to hit home, like why is decision-making as a skill so important for leaders in the marketplace to focus on today, Hazard? Yeah, absolutely. The reason is because technology is amplifying our decisions. So I talked through you know, my uh, ability in the cockpit to do far more than I could on my own. But the same is true for all of us. So the smartphone that you have in your pocket, the computer, your car, all this is technology that's amplifying what we're doing. And one of the stats I go to in the book is that the average human only burns 90 watts of electricity, and yet we are consuming over 12,000 watts. That consumption powers the technology that is leveraging the decisions that we're making. So there are reports out of Silicon Valley that the next billion-dollar company will be run by three or fewer people. That's incredible. So if you go back to the 1800s, to run a billion-dollar company, that would have been hundreds of thousands of people. And so now with uh, with some of the tech giants, it's far less. And three people to run a billion-dollar company is, is just incredible. So each decision that those founders are going to be making is highly leveraged. So it's not just about managing large groups of people, which was you know, an offspring of the Industrial Revolution, where they're trying to control hundreds or thousands of people in a factory. Now it's about making clear decisions because each decision is so far leveraged. Hmm. It's interesting in just the way we talk about decision-making, and I can even think about it this way too, in the way I look at hiring and firing and things like that as a business owner, we can start to think of decision-maker as an identity of like, oh, that person is a decision-maker or the, even like qualitatively, like they're a good decision-maker or a bad decision-maker. One of the paradigm shifts that I feel like your book really presents very clearly is like decision-making is a skill I, I guess, what would you use to support that argument of like, no, this is a skill that can be learned, trained, taught, and developed? From my perspective, being a fighter pilot, the ability that we're able to take somebody who hasn't flown before and within just a couple of years, they're flying combat missions. So that is a extremely uh, condensed course to be able to teach people to make these decisions. And you're making not just dozens of decisions each flight, but hundreds, if not thousands of decisions and often their lives on the line. So it's it's really important to, for us to focus on decision-making, but I don't think it just pertains to us. So everybody out there is a decision-maker. And so that's one of the things I tried to do in the book. I think a lot of people these days, maybe it's because they're part of large corporations, but the organizations that I work with, they're afraid to make decisions. So they like to have committees make decisions, computer models make decisions, consultants make decisions, but ultimately you need to be able to make decisions on your own. So all of those are tools to help you 
But ultimately, you need to find the one of the concepts in the book I talk about is expected value. So what is the good that's going to happen? What's the probability of that good happening minus the risk? What's the bad times the probability of that happening? And so oftentimes we get lulled into these other organizations, even though we're experts in our field, we rely on you know committees to make the decisions. And how many times do committees make terrible decisions in after action reports? So I think every single person in the organization should be taught to make decisions on their own first. They don't have to necessarily implement those decisions, but you should be able to form a decision on your own and back that up with logic and critical thinking. And then at that point, you can come to the table and compare it to what a committee comes up with, what, what the consultants come up with. And that will do two things. One, it'll double check what they're saying is accurate. Or two, if they're accurate and you're wrong, it'll help you to raise your game to understand where you went wrong and to help you become better making decisions in the future. Mm. Is it your experience that like in general, as a general rule, like we as a population until training occurs are ill-equipped to make decisions well? Well, I think a lot of people are afraid to make decisions when there is risk and uncertainty. And unfortunately, you know, the modern world is changing so quickly. AI is coming on board. Everything is getting upended far faster than it happened in the past. So there's always going to be uncertainty, always going to be risk. So if you're expecting to make decisions without being comfortable with those, you're, you're never going to find the, the proper time to do it. So one of the concepts I go into is that no decision is a decision, and it's usually the worst one to make. So there are critical decisions where you should stop everything and really focus and spend days, weeks. So you're saying before that most of our decisions are quick, but we also make decisions that are sometimes years and in the future. We're planning missions that have never occurred yet. So we, uh, we're sometimes bringing together hundreds or thousands of people for a mission that that hasn't occurred. So that can be long-term mission planning. But it's important to be able to focus, to, to buckle down, and to understand the decisions that you're making before, uh, before moving on. Yeah, you kind of highlighted there on the topic of indecision. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. It's like, what is your frame of mind? When you think about, okay, we're pausing on making this decision or we're not making this decision, what are all the factors, variables that are going through your head, both in your role as a fighter pilot, but then now just as a leader, as a human being that's having to make decisions on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So one is, is it reversible? If it's reversible, then a lot of times it makes sense to just make that decision and move on. I think for most people, we have far more decisions to make than we have time available. So a lot of decision making is just knocking out stuff as quickly as possible. And utilizing concept I went into in the book called power laws. So one of the things when you're trying to assess the problem is it's going to follow a law of diminishing returns. So I think most people are familiar with it. If you are working out the first couple of months, you're going to get a lot of gains. Eventually, it's going to start tapering off. The same thing is true when you're making a decision and trying to assess the problem in front of you. So you can spend, call it a decision that is optimally made after six months. You can spend six months making a decision. You can spend two months making a decision. You probably don't have all that information. You can spend 10 years making a decision, but you're going to reach that law of diminishing return where it's probably better off to to make the decision, reset that law of diminishing return, get more information in, and then move that way. So you can't do that with every decision. Every once in a while, you'll get a a really critical decision that it's a one-way door. If you execute it, you can't go back. But those are are definitely the exception. And so for most decisions, it makes sense. Make it quickly, get more information in, and then course correct from there. 
Yeah. And you already mentioned it. It's the first part of kind of the way you frame the book, which I found so helpful because it kind of methodically walks you through. It's not just like a random assortment of ideas on decision making. It really walks through the three steps that represent the helix through which y'all think about it. And the first one is that assess the problem. Uh, can you explain like why this step is so crucial? By, by the way, too, the, the, the story you told at the beginning of this section about that French airliner, oh my God, it's like chilling. And the way that mm-hmm. you wrote this chapter, oh, it's like bone chilling the way that you make the case for it's so crucial that you assess the problem. First of all, yeah, I agree. Like I spent a lot of time on that story and man, it's it's uh, it's really sad what happened. And just just as a brief overview, it was uh, Air France Flight 447 taking off from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, bound for France. And there's a really inexperienced co-pilot. They're going through a, a thunderstorm. There were ice crystals in the air. It blocked all three pitot tubes simultaneously. Not a big deal. It had happened a dozen times in the previous year. Unfortunately, one thing it does is it prevents you from seeing the airspeed. So all of a sudden, the airspeed goes out of whack. The autopilot was on, so it kicked off because it didn't understand the speed. So it's still flying. The aircraft, there's nothing wrong. If they did absolutely nothing, it would have melted within a couple minutes after they went through the uh, the ice crystals and they would have kept flying and the airspeed would have come back. Unfortunately, it was a pretty inexperienced co-pilot. He pulled back on the stick and so they started a a really steep climb and they were already at 35,000 feet, pretty much the max altitude with the weight that they were carrying. And at about 38, 39,000 feet, it stalled still not a big deal as a pilot. So you have tons of altitude. You just push forward the stick and you could regain their speed and climb back up. Unfortunately, he held back the stick for five minutes straight. So long that the captain who was sleeping in the back had time to, and this is how the planes are designed. So there's two co-pilots up front. The captain was sleeping. He came back and was able to sit in the jump seat. And this entire time the airplane stalled into the ground. So five minutes straight of uh, stalling. And unfortunately, hit with a really, you know, 51G impact, killed everybody on board. So the the whole moral of the story was that you need to assess the problem first before making the decision. It's really easy to get yourself in trouble if you're just jumping to conclusions, but you cannot consistently make good decisions if you don't have a good understanding of the problem. And one of the issues with a lot of people and definitely organizations that I work with is that it's tough to measure progress when you're just assessing the problem. You're not hitting your benchmarks like you are when you're actually solving it. So the human instinct is just to start jumping to the first thing that pops into your mind and then running with that. And unfortunately, uh, at least in aviation, that can that can kill you. Mm. One of the things that I thought about whenever I read that chapter was just probably about the first year and a half of our company. We're a baby company. We started three years ago, startup. We now have a team of eight. And I just thought about the fact that one of the things that I think we have done well is that anytime we make a big mistake, we do a pretty good job of debriefing and reviewing, okay, what happened there? What went into that? Unfortunately, early on especially, and it's still this way, right? Like we've made a lot of mistakes that we've had to review and debrief. And one of the things that we recognized early on, probably in about the first year of the business is man, there were a lot of decisions that we made early on 
that we didn't necessarily treat as decisions. Like we kind of stumbled into them. We didn't really treat them as like this like deliberate thing of like, okay, what are we deciding to do? How are we stepping forward? Why are we making this decision? And it, it, it felt a little bit like that was what Assess the Problem was all about is like be really clear on what's going on and what you're deciding. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's just being intentional. And the fact that you're debriefing, Alex, that makes me really happy because a lot of organizations don't do it. That's something that's, that's sacred for us as fighter pilots. We'll go out and we'll fly only about an hour, hour and a half, typically with training missions because that's all the fuel we have. And we'll come back and we'll debrief for two to six hours going through every radio call. And I think that's really the key to learning. If you ask any fighter pilot, what's the most important stage of learning? They'll say the debrief. So the fact that you're doing that is amazing. Yeah, I think I think from the inception of a company, you're making a lot of decisions and you know it's important to get those right and to be intentional. Equity splits, uh, understanding people's roles from the very very beginning, it's important to get that right. A lot of people want to, you know, delay the the tough decisions and I think that's the first test for any company. Can you have those difficult conversations early on because later on uh, a lot of those you can't undo. And if you can't have those difficult conversations early on, you're not going to be able to have those later. So I think from the very first inception of a company, it's it's important to make uh, deliberate decisions. Mm. And I think it was early on in the book, too, that you talk about the topic of like first, second and third order consequences. I felt like that was really helpful to think about. Can you explain like how that idea, first of all, what that idea is and then how that I- informs the way you look at decision making hazard? Yeah, absolutely. So you want to think of decision making as like each decision, the gears on a mechanical watch or or clock or something like that. A small, seemingly peripheral decision can have a large impact on how that clock tells time. Same thing with the decisions that we're making. Even small, small decisions can have a large output in in what we're doing. One of the stories I, I talked to to illustrate that is a time that I almost crashed a jet and I was a young pilot just learning to fly the F 16. And we were dogfighting. We were doing what's called high aspect dogfighting, where we're both pointing at each other, going with closure rates about uh, 1,200 knots, about 1,500 miles an hour, pointed at each other. And so we both did split S's pointed towards the ground. And on the second merge, the instructor that I was fighting against went up in the top, up over the top. So went basically was doing a loop. And I was just a little bit slow. I was. Uh, five knots, seven miles an hour, too slow. And so one of the concepts that I didn't quite understand back then was small things, small decisions can have a large impact. And so I was, I was just a few miles too slow. I still decided incorrectly to go up over the top, basically do a loop and match them. Unfortunately, I ran out of airspeed and stalled the jet when it was perfectly pointed uh, straight up. So I hovered there for a second and then started doing a tail slide where the you know, it's going the wrong direction. And the jet clearly <laughs> I isn't love in the book how whenever you're describing this, it's like it started going the wrong direction and the F-16 isn't meant to do that. Is what it yeah, says. it's not meant to do that. Not not at all. Um, it's meant to do a lot of things. You can you can really throw that plane around, but it is not meant to go backwards. So like, okay, so question. So we get into the spot of where you're at in the cockpit right right then. Like, what's mm-hmm. your emotional state in that moment? And, and how, because I know you talk about mental toughness later. Mm-hmm. How are you responding and reacting in this training exercise when you're literally, I mean, you've gone vertical and you're now moving backwards? You know, I've had a few times in my life where I've realized that if I don't get this right, it's probably not going to work out. 
And, you know, it's not, you know, I don't want to like try and uh, be macho or something like that. There's never been any fear. It's just been focused on how do I solve this problem? And it's almost, I kind of sometimes wish I could go back to that because it's the ultimate meditation. Like you're not focused on anything else. You're only focused on the problem at hand and you know your survival depends on it. So these few times, probably five times during my career, it's been it's been amazing because time seems to slow down. You're focused on the problem at hand. It's something that I can kind of approach a little bit when I'm meditating or working out, you know, running, doing things like that, but it's never like absolute zero. So there's nothing else focused in the back of my mind, just focus on the problem at hand. Uh, so what happened was the, you know, it went backwards for a little bit and then the nose snapped forward. So it was negative 2.4 G's. So we're used to pulling high G's. So that's that's my comfort zone, pulling high G's where you're pushed into the seat and the blood is being drained from your brain. But we have a G suit on and we, we do a lot of training to uh, counteract those G's. But when the blood goes the opposite way, it starts filling up your head. That's something that you can't do any, there's no technique to, to help prevent the blood from going to your brain. And actually you can rupture some uh, blood vessels in your eyes if that happens but uh, negative 2.4 G's, everything starts hitting the cockpit. My water bottle that I have goes ricocheting through and I'm able to, uh, it, it was out of control for a little bit. I'm able to go through the checklist to uh, put it back under control. And within a couple thousand feet above the ground, I'm able to recover it. So A, yeah, so that was that was pretty exciting. And then I guess the fear happens afterwards. So it's not even when you get back to the squadron because you're, you're still amped up on adrenaline, you're Everybody wants to know what happened, but I, I'd say probably maybe three or four hours afterwards when you finally get home, maybe crack a beer, that's when you're like, you know, that was, that was pretty scary. So I, I would say that, you know, everything's delayed when it comes to that. But the, the ultimate, I guess, lesson was that, you know, small, small inputs can have a large output. And I think that's true for flying. It's also true for the business world. It's all, also true for, for daily life. Mm, really helpful. Anything specifically like practical or tactical that would help slow people down to assess the problem? Because I think one of the challenges for me is oftentimes I'm moving so fast and I may get emotionally caught up in the reality that there is a problem. And then I don't just take a deep breath and say, okay, we have a decision to make. Let's make sure we're being methodical and logical and rational and not emotional and passionate about how we're making this decision. A lot of times I'm just moving too fast to even think that way. Are there any techniques that you've learned to help slow yourself down so that uh, you approach a decision the correct way? Yeah, so it, it depends if you're making split-second decisions like we do as, as fighter pilots. I think when it comes to that, it's a little bit different than when you're mission planning for something a few hours, a few days, a few years into the future. So I'll, I'll go with the the latter. So I think the... Most important thing is to be able to prioritize your tasks. So if you're just randomly kind of just going through the dark, knocking out tasks as fast as you can, you know, you, you might not be doing the most important thing. And so one of the techniques that I go into in the book is something that Eisenhower uh, developed, which was assessing the what's important versus urgent. And if you chart those two on an axis, on two axes, you can come up with quadrants. So what's important and what's urgent, what's urgent but not important, what's important but not urgent, and what's not urgent and not important. And so you can put all the tasks that you have for a project or for the day in those different quadrants. And so, of course, the most important thing is going to be what's important and urgent. 
Those are the fire drills that happen. But if you plan correctly, those will be pretty rare. Usually, uh, you know, that's that's pretty rare. You're focused on either what's important or what's urgent. Because of something called the urgency effect, we are, as humans, biased towards what's urgent. So think the notifications, the emails, the meeting invites, the people coming up and talking to you, Those that's what's urgent. So, you know, typically that's not going to be what's going to get you to your ultimate goal, which is doing what is important. So being able to dis- distinguish those two is critical. And if you're able to just write your tasks down into those four quadrants, I started studying there, you're able to be able to increase your ability to prioritize by over 60%. So I think that's a important tool that people can use to help them prioritize. And, uh, you know, getting rid of those urgent things is, is really important. It's important for flying. So we have sterile cockpits where we're not thinking or doing anything from the time. It's, it's not just the cockpit. So it's really the time from when we brief to when we get back from the flight. So we're not checking our phones. We're not thinking about other problems. We're not thinking about, you know, family issues as much as we can. We're just focused on the mission. And then when we come back, we can bring all those other things in. Same thing. I brought that to when I was writing. So writing, I would sit in this office for four hours every morning. I wrote every single day without missing a day for over 500 days straight. Uh, So, I mean, it was, it was painful, but the biggest threat to me was distraction. So you're on your computer. It's extremely boring to write. And so I had to turn off the internet, leave my phone in uh, outside the room. So doing things to prevent those urgent things from taking over what's important. Yeah, it feels like, I mean, in some ways, one of the principles that you took from being a fighter pilot into writing is like, I'm going to treat myself as a professional that needs to act like a professional. Yeah, I, I, and I think that that carries over to most most people out there. I think people who are former um, Olympic athletes or people who are, you know, have done well in business, I think a lot of skills translate over. So I, I had a podcast for a while where I went and talked to different professionals in different fields. One of them was our mutual friend, Scott Parazinski, who's an astronaut. And so he's, you know, as we were talking about, he's one of the most interesting men in the world. He's a tech startup CEO now. He went into space five times, tied the American record. He uh, climbed Mount Everest. So I think there are a lot of skills out there that if you learn in one field, they can translate over to another field. Now you still are going to have to climb down the mountain from being an expert and kind of slog your way up another mountain. But the skills that you learn climbing that first mountain, I think are useful to some of these other objectives. Mm. Man, it, it was so encouraging to hop onto this call today and to hear you say you wrote the book because like there, I mean, and I think people in general know this now, like a lot of times the model is like, if you've made your career doing something and then want to publish the stories of what you did and the principles that you learned, you hire a ghostwriter to do that because writing is a radically different skill set. And the phrase that you said at the beginning that I just found so valuable, but also really unique is I wanted to go through the pain. Uh, So I would love to know what was the pain that, that you were opting in for? And then why, why did you want to go through that in writing this book, Hazard? You're right. So I, I heard a stat that 85% of people who are in different careers who aren't professional writers hire a ghostwriter. And so that's something I, I didn't want to do. I wrote every word in the book. Um, I, yeah, I wanted to go through the pain to see what the experience of writing a book was like. And I was not obviously a professional writer. So I had to do a lot of things to start gearing up to become a writer. So I did different uh, like guest blogs and 
and wrote for some media sites as well every once in a while. So I, I just wanted to, to do something on its own. I felt like it was it wasn't really cheating to hire a ghostwriter, but it was taking away from the experience of actually being a writer. I think, you know, I think back to like Ernest Hemingway, Mark Twain, those guys just no computer, just sitting at a typewriter and just gutting it out, going through it, you know, and they'd have to, you know, if they made a mistake, write a whole new page. So, you know, it's a lot easier with computers now. So I figured, you know, I can, I can probably go through this, this path. And I wasn't sure if I could, I got a book deal and then they, you know, I thought there, there's going to be some help, you know, there'd be some meetings and, and things like that. But, you know, writing a book, they just said, we'll see you in a, see you in a year. So I, I didn't talk to anybody from the publisher for a year. So I was just writing in this office. I'm a pretty slow writer. So I, I'd write about 500 words a day. Sometimes I'd write, it would, it would kick off and I'd write 2000 words. Sometimes I'd write 2000 words, be excited the next day, realize it was terrible. So I'd have to go back, delete the whole, you know, 2000 words. So it was extremely painful going through it. And there are chapters that I had to delete. And, you know, one of the tricks that I've heard from other authors, one of, one of my, uh, I guess mentors writing was a guy named is a guy named Dan Schilling who uh, wrote Alone at Dawn. He was in the original Black Hawk Down. Great, great author, but uh, it was just write a crappy first draft. And so mm-hmm. I did that. But what nobody tells you is that now you have a, a terrible first draft that you have to work into something good. So I went through nine revisions, the first like four or five, just on my own, tearing things apart, getting rid of chapters, reorganizing things. So it was it was really difficult. You know, I don't know if I would recommend it to other people to, to just do it on your own. Cause you kind of sometimes feel like you're going crazy. Cause it's this large, it was like 80,000 words. And if you want to change things, if it's, a, if it's just like a 10 page paper from school, it's not that bad. You're just moving paragraphs. If you, if it's this 80,000 word behemoth, this, you know, oil tanker moving around, it's difficult to, to move chapters and, and sections around. So it was painful, but I feel I feel great about it now. I think anything that you're proud of is is hard, and I know I'm a good writer now, and so I think that's a, a really important skill. If, if you do something every day for 500 days, you're going to get at least pretty good at it. So, yeah, just really proud of how it came out and applying some of those fighter pilot skills to a different field. Mm. Man, I have so many questions on that, and I I know it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's really helpful. I think one of the reasons why I and I think others admire the men and women who are part of our special forces or or men and women that do what you've done is it's like you've gone through this, I mean, stringent process to become elite. And now you are part of this elite professional force. What's crazy and in some ways maybe even more compelling is you took what you did there and now you brought it to writing where it's not like there's someone yelling in your face or a course to follow or a series of training steps that you go through. It's like you are charting your own path to becoming an elite professional in this chosen craft of writing. And what I think is so encouraging, but also in some ways challenging about that is it's like, oh, so you're telling me I or any of us can choose a chosen craft and we can chart our own path to becoming an elite professional in that thing. I think that's that's really cool to know. I'd love to know, is there any advice you would give to people in terms of how they create that path of going from beginner or crappy first draft all the way up to professional and anything else that you've learned about what it takes to chart your own path into becoming a professional into a chosen craft? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. So I would say the first thing is seek out mentors. So no matter what you're trying to do, there are other people who've done something similar. It could be different aspects, but they they've done it and they will save you a lot of time. If you're just, you know, kind of so I was using Dan Schilling to to help me with the writing, but if you're just alone doing things on your own, you know, you can get to the objective, but it's definitely going to be more challenging than it needs to be. So I think first is understanding the the path to where you want to go. And that's from finding mentors to do it. The second is having discipline. So having discipline is a skill that absolutely carries over from other fields. If you are, you know, an athlete who runs marathons, that absolutely will carry over to another chosen field. So I think that's why a lot of organizations seek out people who have proven that they are a disciplined worker. Now you said, as you said, there are organizations, I think that, that promote it and, and kind of lock people into being disciplined. And I think a lot of people think that of the military, but as a fighter pilot, most of the discipline that we have, we're, we're allowed to kind of study how we want to study. We're allowed to learn how we want to learn. We're just have to eventually pass the, the check rides and things like that, that we fly with. So we're given a long rope to, to be able to learn the way we want to learn. And so that's one of the things that I really dove into when I was the chief of training systems for the F-35. So the F-35 was just coming online. We had a golden opportunity to be able to, to craft how students were going to learn in the F-35, which is going to be the future of air power for 50 years. So it, it was really like a once in a career opportunity to do that. And so we really dug into how do students learn. And for us, it was more empowering the students realizing that they wanted to be there, they're motivated. And that if they were failing, it was mostly because we were failing as instructors. So, so they came to the table with their own mental framework for how the world operated. If we wanted to force them to to learn the way we wanted them to learn, we could do that. And we'd proven that we can do that for decades, but that wasn't the most effective way to do it. So we needed to understand how they learn and then to mold our instructor style into a way that that uh, they could understand well. So we did a bunch of different things in terms of changing course for that, in terms of utilizing technology to help them learn faster. But uh, that, that was a great, great experience. And we were able to revamp pilot training, which, uh, which like I said, was, was a rare opportunity. Mm, man, one of the takeaways that I have from that is just that, well, number one, like you anticipated pain, it's not like you were opting in, anticipating that this was going to e be easy and then you were blindsided by pain. You anticipated the pain. But then it, it sounds like what you're saying is like, man, we all learn and apply discipline in different ways. What matters is the result. And so I think like for all of us listening that may be operating in different fields, even than writing um, or certainly than being a fire pilot, it's like hazards method worked for hazard. It doesn't necessarily have to be your method. The, the point is, it sounds like that you have a method and that you stick to that method. Yeah, 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 that's that's it. You you have a method. Usually it's from some sort of mentor or you can read and learn from mentors who aren't around anymore, but understanding how you're going to get there and then after that when I was at the Air Force Academy, we sometimes go on uh you know, rocks and I, I did a couple I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a fighter pilot, so I did some special forces type stuff and we would uh, do uh, rucking. And one thing you learn is you just look at your feet, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Like you, if you look out and see the top of the mountain, you're going to psych yourself out because it's so far away. But if you're just looking at your feet and just focusing 
on one minute at a time, one second at a time. Eventually, after you know a couple couple hours, or if you're going after a, a large goal, a couple of years, you'll get there. And so mm-hmm. it's just about making progress. I really believe in systems for setting things up. So I don't necessarily believe in very very specific short term goals. I believe in coming up with systems and dedicating time and trying to optimize that time because. I think it's difficult for us to be able to forecast how much progress we're going to make. So if you can dedicate those systems to go back to the rucking example, just hike five hours this way, focus on your feet, that's it. You'll make a lot of progress. Same thing with writing, four hours writing every morning. I try to get to 500 words. Sometimes I wouldn't, but just sit in this room for four hours and you know something will happen. Same thing working out. Just go in a gym and sit there for 30 minutes. You'll probably get bored and start lifting weights and you'll make progress. So I would say instead of coming up with the the best way to work out, the best keto diet or whatever, just show up at a gym or make a gym at your home and sit in it for 20 minutes and and you'll you'll get fit pretty fast. Mm. One of the decision-making related questions to this topic uh, is I could or I would assume that as you come into the idea of I want to be a writer and I want to write a book. Okay, well, I mean, your career is pretty fascinating and there's a a multitude of ways you could have taken a book, right? Like there's a billion different topics that you could have written on or even the way that you wrote on one topic. How do you approach the decision of what you're going to focus on? Because I feel like that's sometimes where people get crushed with engaging in a new project or in a new priority or even a new business is like they get crushed by the number of options and then they end up choosing none of them. Yeah. So for me, we had had a lot of different organizations come through our base. So we had had astronauts, CIA agents, we'd had NFL coaches come through. And really the feedback that we got from them was that we really are inspired by the way you make decisions and how you debrief as well. So I I guess I kind of knew that's that's what people were really interested in. Obviously from like Top Gun and movies like that, people were interested in the stories as well. So I wanted to, I wanted I want to do something where I could combine storytelling with these lessons because I think people learn from stories. That's how we've learned for thousands of years. People don't learn from bullet points. So I wanted to do something that was kind of like a Malcolm Gladwell book. You read his book, it's engaging, it goes quick, and you learn some things on top of that as well. Or probably my favorite author is Atul Gawande. He's a surgeon who is now one of the best writers out there. He's written like five books, Being Mortal, Checklist Manifesto, Better. And so he does the same thing. He interweaves these different stories together to be able to tell the lesson at the end. Because I think, you know, you can't just memorize a series of tweets and and become an expert in something. You really, the best way to learn is to do something yourself. But the second best way to learn is to uh, learn through somebody else's story. And as humans, that's something we're great at. We can we don't always have to touch the fire to burn ourselves. We can see somebody else touch it, and then sometimes we don't have to touch it. So I wanted to make uh, make this story-based so that people could remember back to that story and then be able to apply it to their lives. Yeah. One more double-click question in this, and then I want to jump to the choose phase of decision-making. Why did you choose the mentor that you chose? Because I feel like there might be some principles in that that could be applicable to other arenas. And then how did you go about reaching out to him and what did you ask him for? So it kind of came by chance. So he was on the podcast just just like this. And then afterwards, so he had written Alone at Dawn, which which did really well. It was a, a best-selling book. And afterwards, I was like, 
you know, I, I came back from Afghanistan. The story was, I, I came back from Afghanistan. I'd been selected to fly the F-35. I had a little bit of time off. And so to kind of decompress, I was starting to remember some of the stories because it was, it was a really intense period of, of time. I started writing down some of these stories. And then after the podcast, I said, you know, I was kind of thinking about writing a book. You know, I've been putting some words on, on paper and he was like, uh, have you written a proposal? And I was like, no, I'm just kind of just writing it. He's like, no, 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 that's, that's not what you do with for a nonfiction book. He's like, you have to write a proposal. And so he, he walked me through it. And so I, I guess I really wasn't sure if I wanted to write, but then after that and kind of understanding how things worked, I started uh, going down that path. And yeah, whenever I have questions, he didn't really specifically know this, you know, the story I was telling, but he could tell me general things for what worked for him, how to, deal with the publishers, things like that. So he was, uh, he was a wealth of information. So I think just focusing on that really helped me. Mm. Uh, it, it feels as though one of the things, and this applies to decision-making too, that can block people from finding mentors, making decisions, or getting the right information they need to make decisions is this desire to look like they've got it figured out. Like, and I can feel that like hubris in me sometimes, right? Where it's like, well, I don't want to look stupid in front of this person and ask him a question like, oh, I didn't even think about writing a proposal. What even is that, right? Is there anything that you've learned in your career about how to cultivate a humble posture as it relates to getting new information? You're right. The ego really gets a hold of you and that can really sabotage what you're trying to do. The ego can be a good thing, but it can definitely be a bad thing when it comes to being able to assess the problem in front of us. So I think for us, it, as fighter pilots, one of the biggest things is the debrief for us. So we don't, you know, naturally as humans want to call ourselves out. We don't want to say that we're the stupid one that made a mistake and, and screwed up the mission. So over the last you know, this was well before my time. Over the last 50 years, the debrief has been a sacred place for fighter pilots. And so that is where the rank comes off. The uh, It's nameless, uh, faceless, rankless. It's a sterile environment where we're just trying to understand the facts and get better. So it's not a natural environment. It's not stable. So you really have to have strong leadership uh, ensuring that this happens, both from a uh, leaders who have high rank, as well as leaders who are just experienced fighter pilots, they need to be the first people to call themselves out because as soon as they start shirking, uh, shirking that, everybody else is going to follow suit. So I've been in debriefs where a young 20s uh, new wingman is is calling out the wing commander. And so there's a proper way to do that. But the wing commander afterwards, the the times it's happened has been Thank you for for pointing that out. So it it's kind of embedded in our culture now to have these sterile environments. And so it's not natural. It takes strong leadership. But I think that's one of the keys to overcoming the, the ego is setting up systems and then having strong leaders ensure that uh, that you can maintain that. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about a lot is like four fundamentals of operationalizing something and it's standardize, document, and then evaluate and improve. And it's that evaluation piece that I think is a parallel to what you're talking about here. What was insightful for me that literally has already informed the way that I'm relating to our team some now is the amount of uh, time, energy, and money that it seems like y'all invested to that debrief. Like it wasn't just like, oh, we're going to go fill out a form, a survey form on how this went. Like I, if I remember correctly in the book, you say like there's literally like, I mean, 
tens, if not hundreds of people in a room watching a recap of a flight and then go running through a methodical debrief process. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they can be they can be painful. But like I said, that's where the learning comes from. So when we would do these, we would do red flag missions. So they're really high end missions where we bring in people from all around the world, different countries, different services, and we'll fly. So one of the biggest misconceptions people have from seeing movies like Top Gun is it's just one aircraft, four aircraft going out, but it's really hundreds of aircraft all coming together to achieve that common goal. And so if you were flying, the, so we do two, two missions each day, one in the day, and then another group would come in at night. So we would be flying, I think around 11 p.m. at night to midnight. And then we would come back and we would debrief. And by the time we got out of the secure debriefing facilities, there's no windows. The, the sun would be up. And so, yeah, we're spending a lot of time, a lot of effort on these debriefs. You know, it's it's 4 a.m. in the morning. You have hundreds of people in the room. You're doing a shot eval where you're, you're calling all your shots and you're, you're you know piecing together exactly what happened. And so, yeah, we, we will spend a lot, a lot of time on the debrief. Now, when I work with different organizations, you don't have to spend two, six, six hours, 12 hours. You can spend as little as five minutes. Like I find a lot of different organizations do zero debriefing. So any debriefing is going to be better than zero debriefing. So what I recommend to them, if they're not used to it, is always set aside a 30 minute period, have it hard scheduled to debrief after any project. And, you know, you can really do it in as short as five minutes, but if you schedule five minutes, inevitably it'll be one minute. So just schedule a 30 minute period to go through what went well and what went wrong. Because ultimately at the end of debriefs, especially when I work with students, they don't quite have as long of attention span as some of the more experienced pilots. Their brains are kind of fried after just a, a couple hours. I try to boil it down into three things. Three things that they did well to keep their confidence up because sure, you want to tell everything that they did wrong so they can fix it next time. But being confident, being excited, liking what you're doing is is going to be much more important over the long run. So you want to keep their confidence up and their excitement up, but then find three things that they can work on the next time. I still do that after every flight. I'll carry a little black notebook with me. I write down those things and then I try to review it before I do another sortie and I try not to make the same mistakes. So if you do that over the course of you know a couple hundred days, you're going to get much better. Mm. And, and one of the, uh, I guess, insights that came from reading the book is, you know, sometimes I think, okay, we've got so many people in the room, we're spending, you know, even 10 minutes, that's a lot of payroll. But the thing that I had, that had to be a light bulb moment for me is it's like, okay, even though it's one person potentially talking to one person in front of a bunch of other people, it's like, that is one of the best learning environments for everyone involved. And then to be engaged in also giving and offering feedback is also really, really helpful because you can look through the lens of like, okay, am I doing even what I'm advising this person do? So, well, and it's a cultural shift. So I think as the mm. leader, if they see you calling yourself out, they're going to want to emulate that. And that's how it starts. Cause like I said, it's not a stable relationship to do this. So the leaders need to be focused on calling themselves out and then the other people out there will a respect that they'll try to emulate that and they'll be more open to hearing your feedback. So I think there's a lot of, lot of benefits to that more than just getting better in the moment. That's a great point. Cause given the option, it seems like even in a feedback environment, people will keep their mouth shut just because it feels safer. So it's almost like you as a leader have to go above and beyond is what you're saying to create the environment where it's feedback rich. Yeah. And then when somebody else calls themselves out, 
that you don't just, you know, rip them apart because <laughs> yeah. then everybody will, you know, shut down. So, you know, it, there is a whole skill to this. Um, but uh, yeah, just just scheduling some time to debrief and figuring it out on your own is, is a great start. Very cool. One of, the, one of the things that I've observed is that organizations often pick this up whenever they see another organization doing it. So it's like what you said about the coaches or the, the people from the marketplace that would come and visit y'all. It's like, it's one thing to talk about it or even read about it. But man, like when you see it happen, it's like something clicks in people's heads. So that would be, if that's something you're interested in and you're listening to this, find an organization that does it well and go watch that would be an action item. And try yourself because that, that's yes. how people learn. You can't just read case studies all day. I, yeah. I'm a big proponent of just getting into the field, mixing it up on your own, figuring out those lessons because everybody is in different specific circumstances. So if you do it on your own, even if it's not successful, you'll have much more context for when you observe you know, another organization doing it. You don't want to just pour it in everything they're doing. You want to find a way to, to make it a synergistic effect. You can do a great debrief on why that wasn't successful and then move forward from there. Yeah. That's great. Okay, explain. It's ACE, right? Uh, assess the problem is number one. Choose is the next one. What is this choose phase? And then we'll jump into tactically how it plays out. So first thing is coming up with multiple solutions. So that's where creativity comes in. So one concept I go into in the book is effects-based planning, something that the Air Force has been using for the last 30 or so years since the first uh, Gulf War, where you're separating the means of achieving those effects, so planes, tanks, people, from the effects that you're trying to drive. Shut down their communication, shut down their leadership, shut down their electrical grid, shut down their air defense. So separating those two, because in the past, a lot of mission planning was just force-on-force attrition. They send up airplanes, you send up airplanes. They send out tanks, you send out uh, tanks. But you really want to create this synergistic force where you are achieving a lot more than you could on your own. It's called force packaging. And so coming up with multiple solutions is the first step and then being able to choose the best decision. So I talked a little bit earlier, but finding the uh, best expected value for the decision. What is the good that's going to happen? What's the probability of that happening minus the risk? What's the bad that can happen? What's the probability of that happening? Now, you're not going to be able to put in specific numbers. Even the most complex computer models won't do that. So in the military, you know, we have some really elaborate computer programs, but you don't want to look at it as this, you know, crystal ball. You want to look at it as being able to tell you a potential outcome. I think same thing in the the finance world. I I was reading books saying the 08 uh, market crash, the financial model said there's a one in a trillion chance of that happening. So clearly the models were off for that. So even you, though you can have really elaborate, complex computer models, they can still be completely off. So one, one of the things I really emphasize in the book is critical thinking, coming up with the expected value on your own before you talk to even talk to other people, come up with the expected value. You don't have to make a decision based off of that. But then that gives you something to go to the table with and start asking other people. And as a leader, I like to do this before I tell other people my, you know, what I came up with asking what their solution is, what's their expected value of that. And that gets them thinking critically as opposed to just, you know, nodding their head with, with everybody else. Cause groupthink is, is something you really want to prevent when you're coming up with, uh, when you're trying to think clearly and come up with these, uh, complex, uh, decisions. So come up with the expected value of the decision, take into effect those second and third order effects. So 
don't just see it for in the moment, but what is that going to drive you know, down the road? It gets murky. Even computer models get murky. So you're going to have to think critically. And I think that's a good thing that you know, if you're thinking critically, you're having to prioritize the most important variables. That goes back to the assess phase of coming up with power laws, which are you know, exponential growth, law of diminishing return, and long tail power laws. Those three will get you through 99% of the situations out there. So as a human, you have to pare things down into just a few variables, which is a strength um, because it forces you to prioritize and find those those few things that will have a large outsized size effect. And then after that, you want to move on to the next phase, which is execute. Mm. Man, uh, I found uh, reading the topic about effects-based uh, operations actually so affirming because one of the things that we work with business leaders a lot on uh, structuring their business in such a way that they're more focused on delegating outcomes than delegating tasks. And the way that we really teach that in the format that we use is what we call success statements, which we say every essential function of the business, meaning roles, projects, and meetings, should have three to five statements that describe what winning looks like by the end of that being done. And what's been crazy is as we've created that format, it really feels like that parallels very well with everything you described in effects-based operations. What's been crazy that we've recognized in developing our team in this way, but then also in trying to install this within other businesses, is we realize, oh my gosh, thinking through the lens of outcomes first is not natural. Or somehow it's definitely not trained in the school system or in the way we teach business today. It's like our mind automatically goes to how. We go to process, we go to technique, and people start jumping to process before they clarify outcomes. So is there anything that you've learned in terms of developing people to think outcome first? Or is there anything that you would hit home on about thinking outcome first, Hazard? Yeah, first of all, I really like that concept. And it parallels a lot with effects-based planning with the original uh, person who designed it for the Air Force. It was a, a man named John Warden, colonel in the Air Force, he said that every pilot should understand how the bomb they're dropping, what it will what it will do to end the war. And so it's kind of the same thing of how does this all tie in together to achieve your in ultimate objective? So for us, it's working backwards. So anytime we're doing a, a mission out there, we will work backwards. So what's the ultimate effect that we're trying to drive? So from John Warden, it was the centers of gravity. So each country is slightly different. Some are more leadership-based, some are more infrastructure-based, but really communication-based. So really finding a way to disable that so that we can ultimately achieve our objective, which you know is, is ultimately going to be peace. So uh, working backwards from that, for the actual tactical mission, we will have the objective that we're trying to drive. So similar to what you were saying, and then everything will be about finding kind of the, the planning concept would be finding the ends, that's the ultimate goal that you're trying to achieve, the means, so what you have available, the ways, those are the tactics that you have to be able to, to utilize the means, and then the risks associated with that. So we do something very similar, working backwards when we're trying to plan these large, complex missions, because it's easy for people to, to you know just get a small piece of the of the pie and just optimize that at the expense of the whole. So just like the civilian world, when we have hundreds of people coming into mission planning, uh, these mission planning cells, the tasks are divided quite a bit. So you want to find ways to align everybody's incentives as opposed to just optimizing their little task in front of them. 
Mm-hmm. Man, if y'all get this book, which I would recommend you do because it's one that I'm going to be coming back to regularly. I, I did a lot of my reading of this book in the sauna. And so it's pretty torn up. It's pretty sweaty and torn up right now. But this section, I have my pen in there. And man, this section, it's just so practical. And like, I just underline so much because I think that it's so helpful, especially if you're a leader that is interested in uh, like not just delegating tasks, but to get delegating actual responsibility and equipping and empowering decision makers on your team. I just found it so helpful and so insightful with regard to that. One really specific question, which is something that we've ran into on our team, um, and I'd love to use it through the lens of an example. So like we've got an in-person experience coming up in October that is these in-person events that we host for impact-driven leaders and their teams. And so it's coming up in October. We've got clear outcomes that we want to accomplish at that in-person experience in October in terms of the look, the tone, the feel, the content that's presented, who's presenting the content, the people that are in attendance, how they feel when they leave, all of that. One of the things that I think we're kind of in the learning stage of as a company is when we're several months out, like we are right now, uh, we've got a lot of things that we could do, right? There's a lot of options in terms of how we could go about accomplishing the desired objective. And I, I think we don't yet have a format for how do we get all those options onto the table in a way that we're honestly encouraging creativity, right? That it's like, man, it could be a bad idea. Let's just throw it on the board and get it out there. But then how do we go from first doing that and then facilitating it through a process of whittling it down to what we're actually going to do? I'm sure we could probably talk about that for like four hours, but uh, what are some of the high level principles that stand out to you in that hazard? Well, I think it's great that you've identified that you have, you know, a whole bunch of things that you can do and implement. So, you know, ultimately you should you know, have a couple objectives that you're trying to optimize for. Really one objective, if you can optimize for one thing, it's much easier to optimize for that versus versus multiple things. But I think a VEX-based planning would be important. Prioritize the few objectives that you have. I would recommend no more than three, ideally one. And then try to see which of those tasks that you have available will give you the highest expected value for that top objective. And then try to see what will give you the highest expected value for the top two objectives. And that'll whittle a lot of things down and then see what will give the highest expected value for the top three objectives. And I wouldn't recommend going any more than that. So each of those Venn diagrams, if you overlap it, it'll leave just a few things left for you to do. Now, once you have that, I think it would be important for you to use a concept that we call the Gickle line. So the good idea cutoff line. So When we have these missions, we have a lot of really smart people, some of the best people in the world, hundreds of them coming together to plan these really complex missions. It's inevitable that people are always throwing out good ideas. But we have found that throwing down with a a time when we will not accept any more good ideas will actually help us to become more effective. So you don't want somebody at the last minute as we're taxing say, no, 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 your, your plan wasn't that good. Let's change it up and let's do this and let's do that. It, everything just starts to, to fall apart at that point. So usually about two thirds of the way through the planning process, we will freeze the plan and we will not change it. We will not add any more uh, good ideas to that. Now the bad idea cutoff line is always open. So you feel free to always take out a bad idea that doesn't seem to be working. But from in terms of coming up with good ideas, sometimes that's the worst thing that can happen to you is someone smart coming up at the last minute saying, I came. I I just came up with an amazing solution, and then you retool, tear everything apart that you've been working on for the last several months, 
And more often than not, something bad comes from that. Mm. Man, that is such a practical thing that I feel like our team might use to hold me accountable. Like they're going to establish the good idea, cut off line, be like, nope, sorry, Alex, we already passed it. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think honestly, that's a real risk for uh, creative entrepreneurs is they could become a nightmare to their teams because, you know, the, the team's been pursuing something for four months and then a month before it's about to happen, the entrepreneur changes course because they thought of something better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody kind of has different mindsets. Usually kind of the CEO or the mission planner is a little bit lost in their head. They're, they're more of the idea person. So they, they love implementing different ideas, but you're, you're, you know, if they're, if it's a large team, it's a, it's a freight liner, it's not a speedboat going around. So it depends if it's just a single person company, if you're just for, for in my world, if you're just planning a, a two ship, two aircraft going out, you can change things to the last minute. It's not a big deal. But if you're planning with hundreds of people taking off from different bases, you have tankers coming from different continents, you have people on the ground, it's a multi-domain thing. So you have uh, people in the cyber world doing cyber attacks, people in space assets. So I mean, it's, it's mind-blowingly complex. You know, you don't want to be making changes after a certain point. Yeah. But what's crazy from a psychology standpoint is like, I know it's true that a lot of times a deadline almost spurs creative thought. It's just like, you're not getting rid of a deadline. You're just saying we're moving the deadline up. Like you're going to have to choose a plan eventually anyway. We're just saying, let's do it in a time when everyone can get on board with it and we can do it well, which mm-hmm. is really helpful. And and the ultimate deadline isn't changing. So all you're doing is moving your mental bandwidth from the brainstorming phase, coming up with different things to finding ways to optimize it. So that general plan should stay pretty static, but you're still optimizing, you know, you know, how much fuel does the F-16 get? How much fuel does F-22 get? Uh, what's the takeoff order? Do the A-10s take off first or, you know, et cetera. So you're still changing a lot of things, but not at that general level. You, things are mostly frozen at the overall strategic level now you're just focusing on how to execute it extremely well. One thing that really surprised me, I think it was in the choose section of the book and maybe a little bit in the uh, the execute section of the book, was I kind of went into this thinking, okay, fighter pilots, they're very science, technology, engineering, math guys, right? They, they're probably going to have an equation for a lot of the things that, and they're looking at this in a very formulaic way. And I think there's a lot of that that rings true in the book. But then what shocked me was the number of times you used the word intuition, and the amount that you talked about the value and power of intuition. Could you explain a little bit about how you think about that topic of intuition? Yeah, intuition is the mental framework that you've developed to be able to solve the problem at hand. So yes, we we like to break down problems, take them apart and understand them. But you know, at the speeds we're flying a mile every three seconds, you don't have the time to do that uh, you know, all the time, especially when you're flying. So you can think about, you know, the mission planning, you can you know, go through the expected value of everything. But at some point when you're flying, you have to be able to make those decisions like they're second nature. And so that's what we try to build into each pilot's framework. So when we were developing those F-35 wingmen, we really wanted them to be able to fly and be able to solve problems that were different on their own. So for us, it has to do a lot with preparation, putting them into these environments, in training and testing the way they think and shaping the way they think so that they can make difficult decisions in combat that are never going to be the same as what they saw in training. So one of the principles and sayings that we have is that you don't rise to the level of your expectation, you fall to the level of your preparation. So we will purposely make the training scenarios more difficult 
because as soon as you put on your helmet, you lose 20 IQ points. You, you know, it's what seems easy on the ground is difficult when people's lives are depending on you when it's hot. When you climb into these cockpits, sometimes they're 150 degrees if they've been baking in the sun and you have a jacket on, you have uh, a G suit on, which are like snow pants. So it is, it is hot. You, you know, your thinking decreases. So you really want to be able to be prepared and to properly do that so that things are second nature. There's really no other way than preparation. One thing I see in organizations that they don't do a lot of training exercises in the military, most of our missions are training to be able to grow people. 90% of our flights are upgrades. So somebody is trying to do a training scenario to try and upgrade from either a a wingman to a flight lead or a flight lead to an instructor pilot. That's kind of the path for a fighter pilot. So really putting themselves into these positions where they're having to make difficult decisions. And then afterwards, you can debrief how they made those decisions and how they can improve. Mm. It was probably one of the lessons that we learned in the first year is we set out to create a model where anyone that coaches in a one-on-one context, business leaders for our organization is someone that has owned or run a business before. So all of our one-on-one coaches are people that their primary occupation is they were or currently are a business owner. And they're not someone that's been formally trained as a coach. We're providing training as a coach. But for the longest time, it's like we had this curriculum and they listened to, watch, read, all these things. And then we got to the end and we're like, these aren't the coaches that we want. They're, they're, and then we started doing mock calls. And it was like everything shifted overnight the minute we started doing mock calls. And I think that applies to what you're talking about, where it's like put the people in the situation to do the thing as fast as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Put them, put them in there, see what decisions they're making, see how they can improve. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of as soon as you can, get people out into the field, get people into the air as long as they're, you know, go through the proper uh you know, safety protocols so that they're not going to crash. But, you know, as soon as they can get them in the air, test their decision making in the environment that they're going to be operating in. And one thing that we, we, one thing that we saw when we were developing the F-35 curriculum is that we had focused a little bit too much on standardization in the past. So we wanted instructors to be able to bring their experience, their storytelling into the material. So we gave them a lot more leeway to be able to to, to change things on the fly and to, uh, to be able to share their experience. Cause I think that was a lot more effective going back to our storytelling discussion than just going through a rigid syllabus. Can you explain that a little bit more? I want to make sure I understand that piece of like them having input and it being less standardized. That also sounds like a pretty daunting, like a pretty scary thing to let loose the light or the reins on a little bit and to give up control in that regard. So. Yeah, I think it can be for some some of the senior leaders to be able to give up a little bit of control. But one thing that we have on our side is that everybody has gone through a certain process. So you know that when you're talking to an instructor pilot in the U.S. Air Force that they have made it through uh, usually about six to 10 years of training and that it's Mm going to be good training. So you know that these instructors are sharp. So I think for us, it was common sense to be able to allow them to be able to make a little bit more of decision-making on their own. We do that when we're flying all the time. So allowing them to do it a little bit more when it came to the syllabus training requirements was, uh, wasn't too difficult. Now, what locked us in a lot was the, the training software we had, the grade sheets that we had. So it was finding ways to, to prevent the system from really locking everything into doing the same thing every time 
but ultimately trusting the instructor pilots, that was one of our goals from the beginning to, to be able to, to put more weight and put more responsibility on their plate because we knew we had a, a great cadre. Mm. Is there a specific lesson that you learned about developing and training effective decision makers that you think is uniquely applicable to people in the marketplace? I think it's some of the things that we've talked about. I think it's critically thinking on your own, not before before you start moving to models, to uh, committees, to consultants, coming up with the decision on your own, holding yourself accountable, write it down if you have to, so that after the fact, you know, you don't change your mind on what you were thinking. So write it down. If you're a leader, have everybody else come up with the expected value of the decision on their own so that you can see where they are. It's just a form of accountability and it will help you to think more critically. So I think that's an important aspect. Two, trusting people that are experts in the field. And that goes hand in hand with what I was just saying. So if you have built and become an expert in a certain field, your weight in terms of making decisions should be just as high as anything else out there. One thing that we've really found that have that has come back to bite us is that the computer models that we use can be very accurate. And I think this is really applicable with AI coming online. So AI is going to revolutionize how we're doing everything. But the human is still able to think much more critically. They're able to, to be able to think much more creatively. So I still place a large value on experts out there in the field. That's not to say they shouldn't use AI tools. Absolutely, they should use AI tools. But in terms of replacing the critical thinking, I don't think that's going to happen for a long time. So being able to trust these people that have developed these uh, heuristics, these lessons learned, I think is is important for organizations. And even with these amazing tools coming online, don't get caught up in what they can do for a very narrow circumstance because situations have a tendency to change from that. And people are a lot better at adapting than uh, than computer models. There's another topic in this section that I think has a parallel to the way we talk about leadership. We, we talk a lot about principle-based thinking and principle-based leading. And we describe a principle as a concisely worded statement of truth that transcends circumstance. And so one of the things that we've noticed in the marketplace is there's certain things that obviously it's not perfectly true, but it's generally true and will help you distill a large number of variables into a very concisely worded topic. I felt like that was um, very related to the way that you talked about concepts and the way people should understand and apply concepts. Is there anything specific that you've learned about developing conceptual thinkers and, and then also why that's so important that we think conceptually? Yeah, that's a great point. So concepts in our learning model are far more important than facts. So you can think of it like a tree. The facts are the leaves that tie to the branches. The concepts are those branches. So you can have a whole bunch of facts. It's not going to make a tree for you. So you really you need to start with the concepts and they need to all interlock. So if you have multiple concepts that don't make sense, you don't really know which concept goes where. But if you start having concepts where they interlock at the edges, you start having a higher chance of, of certainty that that concept is going to make sense in the circumstance that you're using. So one of the concepts I, I talk about is our ability to, when we're strafing in, in like an F-16 or F-35, being able to use canopy code. So they're basically just references on the canopy to be able to, to pull in and to be able to shoot our gun and make it almost second nature. So that's an example of a, a concept that we really emphasize when we're flying that makes us enables us to make decisions far more quickly than we could by you know doing everything 
by hand with math. So I think concepts are critical in interlocking it into whoever you're teaching. So unless you're teaching, you know, a toddler, I, I have kids, I don't know if, if you do, but if you have a toddler, you can really start at the base level. But if you're getting somebody in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they have a lot of concepts that you're not going to be able to change or undo. So you need to find a way to tie the concepts of your training into the concepts that they already have. So that's a hands-on approach of understanding how they see the world and then distorting and contorting you know, what you're doing into a way that makes sense for them. Otherwise, they're just going to be memorizing facts out there. And as soon as they change, they're not going to be able to adapt to the new world. Mm. That's really helpful to understand and helpful to think about. I also think that's a skill that doesn't necessarily come naturally. It's one that has to be developed. Let's go into that execute phase now. So explain the way that you think about the E in the ACE helix. Yeah, so execute is actually carrying out that decision. So for us, it can be a lot of pressure when we're flying these missions. Sometimes there'll have been hundreds of people, thousands of people that have touched the mission. So people from spies on the ground to intelligence operators to sensor operators on satellites to tanker crews that are launching from other countries. And you're the last link in that chain. So it can be a lot of pressure. You can imagine from the movies, the uh, Joint Operations Center with uh, with all the forces up on the, the board and you're the one that's, that's uh, employing. And so if you screw up, everything can... Uh, all of their work can be for nothing. And a lot of times with high value targets, you only have one shot and you'll never get a chance at them again. So being able to execute for us is being able to overcome that pressure. Uh, the Air Force has done a lot of studies over the years that have shown that there's an optimal band of performance. This really started in World War II when experienced fighter pilots they were finding were making stupid mistakes and crashing in combat. And that's because they're getting too stressed out. And as you get too stressed out, your performance starts to rapidly decrease. On the other end of the spectrum, we we call it complacency. If things are too boring, which believe it or not, it can get sometimes a little bit boring in the cockpit if you're just drone in circles, uh, you can get complacent and you can make start making a lot of mistakes there. So you want to find that optimal zone of performance and then be able to uh, to execute. So for us, that's being typically being able to calm our nerves. Um, one example is new students, they oftentimes have trouble refueling for the first time. And so that's when we're going up to a essentially an airborne gas station and connecting with another airplane. And it's 100% manual. So there's, there's no autopilot uh, on it for us. So you're hand flying it and you're taught your whole career not to hit another aircraft. And now you're intentionally touching another aircraft. So it can be pretty nerve wracking. So we do a lot of different techniques to be able to, to calm them down, to and, and we did some some studies where we showed their heart rate was getting up to like 170, 180 beats a minute, which is just, you know, full on sprint. But they're sitting down, like they're literally sitting down when that happens. Yeah. Yep. And so your motor coordination starts to decrease. So it's really important to be able to, to, to calm down so that you have the uh, hand-eye coordination. But it's important for, for everybody to be able to be in that optimal zone of performance because more importantly than hand-eye coordination is your ability to think clearly. It starts to get really murky. That's why we say you lose 20 IQ points as soon as you put on your helmet. You really want to train yourself. And that's the most important thing, to be able to train yourself in these situations so that when it actually happens, it's it's not that difficult. So that's the number one thing you can do. After that, there's some little techniques like being able to do box breathing, You know, four seconds in, hold four seconds, four seconds out, hold four seconds, 
different things like that, visualization, self-talk, things like that that can help you a little bit. But ultimately, it really comes down to being able to prepare for the situations that you're going to be in. Mm. Well, yeah. And it just strikes me too that like y'all just took what you were going into so seriously. And then I, you know, I'm a big Jordan Peterson fan and his book, 12 Rules for Life, he talks about treat yourself as someone you're responsible for helping. It's like y'all were relentless, it seems like, about putting yourself in a position to where your brain can actually operate well. Are there any things related to like what you eat, how much you sleep, how much you drink, like things that you do before for maybe 48 hours that you were really focused on to put yourself in a position where you could make good decisions and think clearly when it mattered most? Yeah, absolutely. But first, just just backing up a little to your point, treating yourself well. So we were finding a lot of students, they would essentially choke when they were flying. So there'd be new students in their 20s, great pilots, never really messed up before. As soon as they made a mistake, they would let things snowball. And so the speeds were flying really fast. It's easy to quickly get yourself into a dangerous situation. So the reason they were choking and failing at something that they knew they could do well was because they, when they made a mistake, were kicking themselves. They were berating themselves and they were spending mental bandwidth thinking about how they probably failed the ride or how they're you know going to fail out of pilot training. And if you've just made a mistake, the worst thing you can do is to focus on that. Use up 25% of your ba- mental bandwidth. You need every you know, ounce of your being there to be able to make a better decision the next time to get yourself out of that hole that you've dug. So for us, being able to, to explain to them that kind of uh, cycle that can happen. Also setting aside time to debrief because not only is debriefing good for getting better, but if you make a mistake when you're flying, you can say, I'm not going to think about it now. We have a dedicated time afterwards to think about it. And that's what I do. I make plenty of mistakes, never flown a perfect sortie. But when I make a mistake, that's the first thought that comes in mind. I'll worry about that later. I'm not going to worry about it now because I have a dedicated time to debrief. But to answer the question you asked, absolutely. So we do a lot from the human performance standpoint. That's probably the biggest change that's happened over the last 10 years to fighter pilot training. We did a little bit before, but we've really become professionals at it. So being able to stay uh, stay in good shape. So we have we have people working with us to make sure we're in good shape. We have nutritionists working with us. It's important to stay hydrated. Just being 3% dehydrated can reduce your G tolerance time by 50%. And we're pulling a lot of Gs out there. So nine times the force of gravity, just crushing you into your seat. That's over 2,000 pounds on your body. Each arm weighs 250 pounds. Just on your neck is 135 pounds. And uh, unfortunately, the blood is being pulled out of your brain and into your extremities. And if you lose enough, you can pass out. And unfortunately, we've we've lost about one pilot a year for the last 30 years to passing out. And before they wake up, they impact the ground. Because usually at these high performance turns, you're going to be slightly pointed down in max afterburner. So not only is it important from a G tolerance standpoint, but it's important from a decision making standpoint. To, to be hydrated, to have good nutrition. When I was flying missions in Afghanistan, out you know six six hours long, I'd have to eat to maintain my blood sugar throughout that. Sleeping, one of the most important things. And that's really challenging as a fighter pilot. You're sometimes flying missions in the middle of the night. So finding ways for you to be able to adjust your schedule quickly, to be able to sleep. You have to sleep legally. Uh, you have to have 12 hours of rest. Um, before flights and eight hours of uninterrupted 
uh, time to sleep when we're flying. Sleep is that important. And this is another thing the Air Force has done a lot of studies on. They've, they've taken pilots, put them into simulators, and also adjusted their sleep at the same time. And what they've found is that if you reduce a pilot's sleep after about a week of, say, you go from eight hours to seven hours, after a week, that pilot will feel good with seven hours of sleep. But they will still be making the same amount of mistakes that they made with seven hours of sleep the first day. So you can't trust your own gut for feeling good. Um, same thing with six hours. So they'll take a pilot from eight hours after a couple weeks of six hours, they now feel they're good and rested at six hours of sleep. They're still making a lot of mistakes at that. So what we've found is the optimal amount of sleep is eight hours for just about everybody out there. And if you're sleeping less and you know, you always hear people, oh, I'm good with four hours. I think there's some genetic mutants out there, but for the vast, vast majority of people, you've probably just gotten accustomed to low sleep. And that's one of the most important factors to making good decisions. So there's a lot from the human performance standpoint that we focus on. Mm. Uh, okay. Uh, man, I have so many questions on that stuff, but we're, we're running close to time. You distinguish between rest and sleep. What's the difference? So for us legally, that's just, we can't be doing anything work-related for 12 hours before we, uh, before we fly. And then eight hours needs to be for actually actually sleeping. So it is a bit of a nuanced thing. Um, That's wild, though, that they they literally, when you are awake, they don't want you doing work and that they see value to that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's so much we could be doing. And yet they, and and this is another thing, organizations tend to, tend to bias in a direction. It's biased so hard as fighter pilots. We want to do so well. We want to, you know, we put all our effort into helping the squadron but they have to legally force us to not do it because otherwise, you know, the, the natural bias of an organization is to just, just work people as much as they can. But that's how important it is. You have to, you can't legally give anybody uh, air force related work for 12 hours beforehand. And they need to set aside at least eight hours of sleep every time before they fly. Which that's crazy. I mean, like what I take away from that is Alex, business owner, it is in your best interest that your team uses their weekend well. And that they're not responding to emails over the weekend and doing things over the weekend, like, because that is going to detrimentally affect their performance, obviously within reason and all of that. But it's like keeping in mind that it's like, man, what do we actually want? We want an optimally performing team member. And the way you do that is you have scheduled periods of rest. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I think, I think more day to day is, is, is critical because when we deploy, we'll, we'll work every day. So we will never have days off. I mean, in a six month deployment, you might have three or four days off, but there's no weekends, no holidays. You're just, mm. you're just continually grinding. So I, the way I look at it is more of a, from a day-to-day perspective. So I, I think everybody's different. Some people look at it from a week to week perspective, but I try to just try to, I try to have as many perfect days as possible in a row. And so each day I try to dedicate eight hours of sleep, a little bit of time to unwind and so for me, that cadence works better. And so I, I like working every day, mm. just I kind of shift what I'm doing. But I think for, for a lot of people, they're used to, to the weekends. Sure, yeah. But even then, just being clear about how much rest you need and making sure you're getting that. I, I've been in this position, gosh, it was probably about six months ago, and I've talked to other leaders that are part of our community that have been in this position too, where they're going through a really stressful season in the business. And that stressful season makes it to where 
man, maybe they're waking up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. and maybe they're just waking up to go to the bathroom, but then it sucks because it's such a stressful season. Their mind gets moving and it's like, then all bets are off. They're getting five to six hours of sleep, even though they want to get eight hours of sleep. And it creates this like, doom loop of like, man, I'm getting less sleep because I'm stressed, but that's also making me more stressed, which means I'm getting less sleep. Have you ever experienced anything like that? And do you have any advice for the person that's in that position? Definitely. And so that's one of the stories I talk about in the book is that our base came under attack from a suicide bomber. And I was one of the first pilots that was going to fly after that. So they woke me up. It was in the morning and they said, you're going to be one of the first pilots to fly after this. Go back to sleep. So that's pretty challenging to hear that the base is under attack, go to sleep. I wasn't able to sleep that well. Obviously, uh, that's that's a pretty challenging situation. But I think the best thing that helps me to, to prevent going down that path, A, keep your phone out of the room. Got to keep electronics out of the room. Don't ever check it. I think that's just, you're going to get sucked into it. Uh, and second is understanding that rest is is pretty good. Rest, I think of as like 25% sleep. So if you if you accept that rest is not bad, you know, it's it's better than nothing, then I think you can at least sit there with your eyes closed. Um, I think meditating helps. Um, there are a lot of apps out there that can help you uh, help you meditate, that box breathing as well. So I think there are a lot of little individual tools that, that you can do. Nothing's going to be foolproof. You're still going to have moments like that. But if you can reduce it by 50%, I think it's worth going down that path to, you know, and this is, I could talk for a long time about optimal sleep, uh, you know, temperature, light, sound machine, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of science backed uh, techniques to doing this, but I think keeping your phone out of the room and just understanding that rest is, is pretty good for you and better than doing nothing. Well, maybe one day we can record that sleep podcast because I think that would be a really practical discussion. Yeah. Man, I took you right up to time. I, I'm so grateful, uh, number one, for you being willing to invest time in our audience and in what we're doing, um, just based off an, of an Instagram message. So thank you for that. Uh, y'all, the book is truly fantastic. It's one that I'm going to keep on my shelf and I've already recommended to my friends. It's The Art of Clear Thinking. Uh, I know you can get it wherever books are sold and I would recommend you do so because it just like today's podcast, such a practical guide. And there's so many visuals in the book too that you just can't get in just a, a discussion about it. And the models are really helpful for seeing what he's talking about and how it actually works in action. So uh, Hazard, if people want to stay in touch with you and everything you're doing, you post some incredible videos. Uh, so how can they stay in touch with you and everything that you're doing? Yeah, everything's just under at Hazardly with S. So H-A-S-A-R-D-L-E. You can find me on YouTube, do a bunch of cool videos on there, Instagram. So yeah, love, love to hear from people. I'm glad the book's doing well. So feel free to read it and reach out to me, ask me some questions. Killer. Well, thanks for your time. And, uh, and more than that, your example as well. Just really inspiring. Appreciate you. Thank you, Alex. Well, gosh, that conversation was just so practical and so helpful as it relates to the topic of decision-making. I'm inspired by just the reality that kind of embedded every part of Hazard's perspective, and that is that decision-making is a skill, and that means that it's something that we can learn and grow in every single day, but it's also something that we can equip, train, develop, and empower others with. So thanks to Hazard for his time in this conversation, but also 
for so methodically and thoughtfully inscribing everything that he's learned about decision-making in this book. I really, really would recommend you pick it up and read it and share it even with the leaders on your team. Hey, real quick, before you go, uh, if you're new to the Path for Growth community and what we're doing here on the podcast, Path for Growth is a company that provides one-on-one coaching, team training, and in-person experiences for impact-driven leaders who own or run a business. And one of the ways that we train and equip business owners is through what we call the Path for Growth membership. If you join the membership, you get access to the 12 fundamentals for healthy growth. We've noticed that there are 12 fundamental structures and rhythms that if you put them into place in your business, you have the infrastructure necessary to grow your business while reducing your stress. But if you like even just one or don't have one up to standard, well, then your business and also your stress level is going to suffer. So you get access to all 12 fundamental lessons in the handbooks that walk you through step-by-step how to implement those into your business. And then we also host a weekly conversation that is casual yet intentional with impact-driven leaders. It's always facilitated by the coach. And we're really focused on not just solving problems through a course, but rather solving problems within our business through community. These are one of my favorite things we do. It's such vibrant, growth-oriented conversations with really sharp, high-character, high-caliber leaders from around the country. We'd absolutely love to have you as a part of the membership, and we believe so much in it that we're actually giving you a free 14-day trial. So we're going to give you the opportunity to check out all the lessons and come check out a couple of the office hours calls completely for free on us. And if you decide it's not for you at that point, that's totally fine. But we believe so much in the value that this will create for you and the return that it will create for your business that we really believe you're going to want to stick around. So if you're interested in applying for that 14-day free trial, you can do so at the show notes in this episode or go to pathforgrowth.com. Hey, y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.